0: Hi, Vetfolio Voice listeners. Thank you for joining us for this podcast episode, sponsored in part by Zoetis, where we're joined by three fabulous speakers to discuss Lyme disease and Lyme arthritis. As veterinarians, we're taught about Lyme arthritis in vet school, but recent studies have revealed new information about this disease. In this episode, Dr. Karen Stasiak, Dr. Joyce Logan, and Dr. Claire Walther join us to offer new insights into what we've learned about Lyme disease in recent years. Dr. Karen Stasiak is the Veterinary Medical Lead for Biologicals with Zoetis. She earned her master's degree in nursing from the University of Cincinnati in 1994, followed by her DVM degree from the Ohio State University in 2001. Prior to joining Zoetis, she was in private practice for 13 years, including owning a mixed animal practice in Colorado. She's received additional training in comparative animal medicine and is currently enrolled in the master's program for clinical microbiology and infectious disease at the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Logan also earned her veterinary degree from The Ohio State University and began her career practicing in a small animal hospital in New Jersey. She left private practice to work in the animal health corporate world and has had the opportunity to work for various animal health companies, including Hills, Novartis, and Bayer. In 2010, she joined Zoetis and is currently the Senior Manager for Veterinary Medical Affairs supporting feline and canine chronic pain products. In 2019, she received her certification in public health and is also fear-free and cat-friendly certified. She has special interests in the areas of veterinary communication, pain, and vector-borne diseases, perfect for this podcast on Lyme disease. Dr. Walder is originally from the Midwest and received her Bachelor's of Science and Doctorate of Veterinary Medicine from Purdue University. She has a small animal clinical focus and practiced outside of Indianapolis for four years before joining Zoetis in 2016 to foster her passion for education, research, and innovation in the field of veterinary medicine. At Zoetis, she was the technical lead for the launch of ProHeart12 and Simperica Trio, two products that I love and use frequently. And it's the love that she shares for her family, both human and animal, that fosters her drive to enhance our ability to detect, prevent, and treat disease within the field of veterinary medicine. I am thrilled to have them with us for this episode. Let's get started. Dr. Stasiak, I know you're working on your degree in infectious disease and your dissertation associated with Lyme disease, and you've been in clinical practice. What are three new things you know now about Lyme disease that you wish you knew when you were in practice?
1: Thank you, Dr. Cassie. The three things I know today that I really wish I knew before, um, an understanding of the pathogenesis of Lyme the ability of Lyme to cause subclinical arthritis, and considering dogs as sentinels for human tick-borne disease.
0: Sure. So tell me what's new about Lyme disease pathogenesis.
1: We've learned a lot about the organism Borrelia burgdorferi. The spirochete changes the proteins on its surface, and these are called outer surface proteins, and you may have heard them referred to as OSP-A or OSP-C. This change in the proteins allows them to live in two completely different host niches, a tick and a mammal, which really can't get much different than that. The spirochete also uses this ability actively prevent the immune system from eliminating it. That's what allows it to survive and persist in the body. And that immune evasion is largely interrupting the ability of the complement system, modulation of surface proteins to make antibodies ineffective, And failure of lymph node germinal centers contribute to poor long-term immune memory. It's really this understanding about the variability that has led to vaccine innovation.
0: And you mentioned subclinical arthritis. Why is that important?
1: Lyme disease can cause three syndromes in dogs. Lyme arthritis is the most common clinical presentation. Less common is progressive renal failure termed Lyme nephritis. And we now know that dogs may develop subclinical arthritis. We rely on our eyes as veterinarians doing physical exams, but the awareness that this significant inflammation can occur without overt lameness is a concern. We do not fully understand what this means for the client-owned dog. Does it set them up for chronic osteoarthritis, cruciate tears, decreased quality of life? This awareness makes me
2: committed to preventing Lyme disease in dogs. That's a great point, Dr. Stasiak. You know, the jury is still out about whether dogs get chronic osteoarthritis from Lyme, but it certainly seems like it could be possible. There was a really interesting study done looking for bacterial DNA in the joints of dogs with naturally occurring ruptured ACLs. And surprisingly, 14% of the dogs with naturally occurring anterior cruciate ligament rupture, arthropathy, were positive for Borrelia DNA. You know, it warrants more study for sure, but it's definitely food for thought.
0: No kidding. I have never heard that statistic about connecting ACL injuries potentially to Lyme disease. So how does knowing dogs can serve as sentinels for tick-borne diseases matter to veterinarians?
1: There are many studies showing that dogs can serve as sentinels for human tick-borne diseases. Ticks are geographically expanding and taking Lyme disease in emerging areas, where there are positive dogs, there's positive people. Veterinarians are on the front line at this One Health interface. Educating pet owners, on this is a huge value add for veterinarians. However, if veterinarians are not routinely screening for tick-borne disease, they won't be able to leverage this with their pet owners. And it also makes diagnostics and treatment decisions much more difficult. What do you do with that limping dog if you've never tested them for Lyme disease and the test is positive? Is it newly positive or is it limping from another cause?
3: You know, I want to build on what Karen was saying about worsening tick risks. The main tick in the U.S. that transmits Borrelia burgdorferi is the deer tick or also known as Ixodes scapularis. This is absolutely a growing concern in the U.S. because deer ticks are on the move. We traditionally have thought of, you know, Lyme disease as being challenging in the Northeast, but data has shown Ixodes ticks are thriving in areas they previously didn't inhabit. And according to the CDC, Ixodes scapularis has been found as far west as Oklahoma, and it is well documented in Florida. Beyond that, environmental conditions are favorable into areas of Texas, Nebraska, Kansas, and even the Dakotas. So this tick is definitely shedding its winter coat and coming to a home near you. On top of that, we are seeing an increase in Lyme positive tests in dogs, especially in states on the edge of tick expansion into particularly the Midwest.
0: So we recognize that the threat is there. And it kind of makes me want to dig into the practical side of things. I mean, when I see a dog who's limping, my mind doesn't immediately go to, I need to rule out Lyme disease. But Dr. Logan, in your role, you're focused on pain and pain management, pain identification. What can you share with us about how to ID Lyme arthritis in our patients?
2: Thanks for that question, Dr. Cassie. You know, I don't think many of us do have Lyme disease as a differential diagnosis for a limping dog. Just as with everything else about Lyme, arthritis can present in several ways, and it may be really tough to diagnose. It can present as an acute severe lameness where the joints are classically swollen, red, and painful in a truly inflammatory disease process. That phase will likely show other signs, though, as well as fever, enlarged lymph nodes, depression, and anorexia, So at that point, Lyme disease as a rule out might make sense, but there's another presentation where the lameness occurs months after the infection, and the dog may have seroconverted at that point. There's a study where dogs became lame two to six months after being experimentally infected. Not only is the tick long gone by this point, but there may not even be evidence of the infection in the diagnostics.
3: Joyce, you are absolutely right. And I just want to reiterate to the group here that no history of pet owners finding ticks does not rule out the potential for Lyme disease. Ticks are amazingly frightening. <laughs> they spend so little of their life actually on the host. They can live up to two years, but only spend a matter of hours on a pet. That's less than 1% of their entire lifespan that is spent on the host. The likelihood that this pet comes into the vet on that day is extremely low. A second consideration is that only female ticks engorge. As they grow in size, it, it does make them easier to spot But males or unfed females can be as small as a poppy seed, making them nearly impossible for pet owners to find. When a pet owner says to me, I don't see ticks on my dog, I believe them. You know, I'm a neurotic dog mom, too, and I live in Tick Haven, New Jersey, and I know I don't see all the ticks that are there and without a doubt feeding on my dog. They're just too small and too good at hiding. And they're only on them for short periods of time. This to me stresses the importance
0: of prevention. Okay, so deer ticks in particular transmit Lyme. How does it actually end up affecting the joint?
1: Ah, yes. And this answer isn't as clear as we used to think. What we know is that an infected tick can transmit the spirochete in usually 24 to 48 hours to the dog once in the body It evades clearance by the immune system and is a persistent pathogen in the skin, connective tissues, nervous system, and the joints. Historically, we believed it was only the dog's immune response to the pathogen that caused the arthritis, but evolving understanding of the pathogen is really a lot more complex. We're just beginning to understand that different strain targets different tissues, and this is largely related to the spirochete proteins working as adhesins that bind different receptors on different cell surfaces. And this may explain the variable clinical presentations that we see today.
0: Oh my goodness. You ladies are painting a picture here. The vector is spreading Borrelia sounds like a clever and complex pathogen, and the clinical signs can be difficult to detect. So how would you recommend practitioners like myself approach evaluating for Lyme arthritis?
1: Presented with the limping dog can take your brain in a bunch of different directions. Testing for Lyme is a great first step. It's an in-house diagnosis, and if you're routinely testing, you'll know if that dog is newly positive. For the dog with a positive Lyme test and clinical signs, I recommend following the ACVIM guidelines, which calls to evaluate the urine for proteinuria with a urinalysis and a urine protein creatinine ratio and a chemistry to evaluate for Lyme nephritis, followed by antimicrobial therapy for 30 days. And don't forget, these dogs are in pain. Implementing pain management is important.
0: It seems like the science around Lyme arthritis is evolving. So what about the treatment options?
2: When it comes to treating symptomatic Lyme arthritis, the key is to deal with the bacteria first and foremost. In the early stages, dogs often respond pretty well to antimicrobial therapy with the lameness usually resolving in about one to three days. The antibiotics should be prescribed for 30 days, which is the guidance that you can find in the ACBIM consensus statement online. By the way, if you don't have that paper, it's definitely worth downloading it To have it on hand and it's open access, so you should be able to get it. There's a list of treatments in the Lyme consensus statement, but doxycycline is usually preferred as a treatment and amoxicillin or some of the injectable cephalosporins may also work against Borrelia organisms. You may want to add in a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to manage the pain and inflammation to make the dog more comfortable while waiting for the antimicrobial treatment to kick in. If you do include an NSAID, make sure to keep in mind the possibility of Lyme nephritis. That's why what Dr. Stasiak said, it's really helpful to get a baseline urinalysis and urine protein ratio at the time of diagnosis.
3: I really appreciate the approach to the diagnosis and treatment that Dr. Logan and Stasiak shared with us. For me though, a key key factor is awareness of the risk and proactive approach to prevention. You need to know your foe here. So ask yourself, what is the Lyme risk in my area? Do I have Ixodes ticks? Do I have a competent intermediate host like the mouse? What is the prevalence of Lyme in my area? You can get a veterinary point of view on this by going to capsivet.org under the prevalence maps. But also check out the CDC, as Lyme disease has been a notifiable condition in humans since 1991. Once you have a strong understanding of your average patient population risk, formulate a risk mitigation protocol, including both vaccination and prevention. Vaccination studies have been performed demonstrating that broader outer surface protein coverage could provide broader protection. And a couple studies have been published that showed the isoxazoline tick preventative class blocked the transmission of Borrelia. Lastly, we cannot forget about client education. A survey showed that roughly nine out of 10 pet owners wanted to know about parasitic risks to their pet. I know we all can agree. I would rather spend two minutes today to explain the risk and recommend prevention than numerous repeat visits working up a patient knowing that this can be a lifelong and progressive condition.
0: Yes, thank you, Dr. Walder. I couldn't agree more. As the saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, or in this case, treatment. What key takeaways would you leave us with today?
1: Anyone that knows me, knows I don't actually like to treat anything. I like to prevent disease. Vaccination has historically been and remains one of the most cost-effective and safest forms of medicine we can deliver. Lyme disease is emerging in areas we don't expect it, we're unable to predict if clients are going to travel to an area with Lyme disease, and the disease can be devastating. Using a broadly protective Lyme vaccine paired with veterinarian recommended tick control year-round can decrease the chance of the disease, and I'm just waiting for my chance as a human to have such preventatives.
0: Absolutely. Thank you again to all of you for joining us. All right. I would like to sincerely thank Dr. Stasiak, Logan, and Walder for joining us today. And thank you to Zoetis for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to find out more about this and other exciting podcasts, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DBM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.